How many of you guys would consider yourself a little superstitious? Yeah. All week my wife has been sending me the clip from the office when Michael Scott says, I'm not superstitious, but I am a little stitious. <laughs> so how many of you might consider yourselves a little stitious? <laughs> Maybe you do things like picking up lucky pennies, knocking on wood, crossing your fingers, a slight fear of Friday the 13th, which heads up is gonna happen in October. Wanna check your life insurance policy. Maybe you have a good luck charm, something you carry with you or, or keep in your car, a four-leaf clover, horseshoe, rabbit's foot, or sports fans. All right, do any of you have superstitions while watching the game, like, like not wanting to get out of your seat while your team's playing well or maybe wearing the same jersey or hat? Maybe you play like the same pump-up music or fight song or have a special token that comes out during the game, a, a playing card, an old baseball glove, a, a candle, a flag. Maybe like Canadians, you grow a playoff beard <laughs> or you rock a rally cap or you have an allegiance to a particular pair of underwear, right? It, it sounds a little silly, but it's kind of real too, isn't it? All right, Cubs fans, I see you. The curse of the billy goat finally broken. Bears fans, I don't know what kind of curse you have, but it doesn't seem like a good one. <laughs> a survey of 2,400 avid American sports fans found that nearly three quarters of them carried some form of superstition on game day. 62% of respondents said at one point or another they had actually blamed themselves for a team's loss. 38% uh, said that they, they genuinely believed they had a friend or a family member who was bad luck. And of that 38%, 48% admitted to asking that person to leave the room <laughs> during a game. We laugh because it's true. We might not actually believe all of them or act on all of them, but I bet nearly all of us have played with some form of superstition from time to time. They can be fun, entertaining. They can even be uniting if you can convince enough people to do it with you. So today's story, or I guess a string of stories, centers around this idea. Today we read about what can happen when people turn God into a good luck charm. Right, when they trade in their relationship with God for a religion of superstition. But before we go there, a quick recap. Right, and Julia does these with the kids. So I don't even know if I need to do them. But two weeks ago, we opened up the book of 1 Samuel as we are reading our way through the Old Testament. And we were introduced to Hannah. Hannah so desperately wanted to have children, but it wasn't happening. And so after years of waiting, she cries out to God and promises if God was to give her a son, she would devote her son and give him back for the Lord's service. She has a son, names him Samuel, and Samuel is raised in the temple by the head priest, Eli, in Shiloh. 
Now, as we learned last week, Eli's sons, who were also priests, have been abusing their power and leading people astray. All the while, Samuel is, is developing a, a special sort of relationship with God. The word of God, or a revelation of God's character and desires, comes to Samuel regularly. It's almost as if God is preparing Samuel for something. Now that's where we pick up today. The people of God are at war with their neighbors, the Philistines, and Eli's sons are going to take center stage for a moment. Trigger warning of sorts. It's a a bit of an odd story with lots of odd details, but, but that's part of what we do here. At CUCC, at least we, we try to read all of it, or as much of it as we can. Beloved stories like David and Goliath, they're coming in just a couple weeks. And we'll all know them, and we'll enjoy them. We'll get there. But today, today we have a different story. So let's read together from 1 Samuel, starting in chapter 4. Now the Israelites went out to fight against the Philistines. The Israelites camped in Ebenezer and the Philistines in Aphek. The Philistines deployed their forces to meet Israel, and as the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 of them on the battlefield. When the soldiers returned to camp, the elders of Israel asked, Why did the Lord bring defeat on us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the Lord's covenant from Shiloh so that God may go with us and save us from the hands of our enemies. So the people sent men to Shiloh and they brought back the ark of the covenant of the Lord Almighty who is enthroned between the cherubim. And Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the ark of the covenant of God. I know it may be a little hard to follow at times, so here's the gist. The Philistines, a people who were in the promised land before Israel showed up, are at war with the Israelites. And on this particular day, the Philistines take the lead. They've driven the Israelites back into their camp, and the Israelites aren't accustomed to losing. So they bring their greatest minds together, and they decide it'd be a good idea to grab the nation's most sacred and treasured possession and to march it into the middle of a losing battle. Let's see how that goes. When the Ark of the Lord's Covenant came into the camp, all Israel raised such a great shout that the ground shook. Hearing the uproar, the Philistines asked, what's all this shouting coming from the Hebrew camp? When they learned that the Lord, the ark of the Lord had come into the camp, the Philistines were afraid. A God has come into the camp, they said. Oh no, (laughs) nothing like this has ever happened before. We're doomed. Who will deliver us from the hands of these mighty gods? They're the gods who struck the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the wilderness. So the plan's working, all right? Like a cosmic good luck charm, Eli's sons bring the Ark of the Lord's Covenant onto the battlefield, and the Israelites are loving it. They're hooting and hollering. They freaked out the Philistines. That is until one commander chimes in. 
We keep reading. Be strong, Philistines. Be men, or you'll be subject to the Hebrews as they've been subject to you. Be men and fight. That feels like a scene in Mulan, right? It's a little, little intense. So the Philistines fought, and the Israelites were defeated, and every man fled to his tent. The slaughter was very great. Israel lost 30,000 foot soldiers. The ark of the Lord was captured, and Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, died. That same day, a Benjamite ran from the battle lines and went to Shiloh with his clothes torn and dust on his head. When he arrived, there was Eli sitting on his chair by the side of the road, watching because his heart feared for the ark of God. When the man entered the town and told what had happened, the whole town sent up a cry. Eli heard the outcry and said, what is the meaning of this uproar? The man hurried over to Eli, who was 98 years old and whose eyes had failed so that he could no longer see. He told Eli, I've just come from the battle line. I fled from it this very day. Eli asked, what happened, my son? The man who brought the news replied, Israel fled before the Philistines, and the army suffered heavy loss. Your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of the Lord has been captured. When he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell backwards off his chair by the side of the gate. His neck was broken. And he died, for he was an old man and overweight. He had led Israel for 40 years. Yikes. It's quite the story. Turns out God is a good luck charm, backfires a little. 30,000 soldiers die, Eli's sons die, Israel's most sacred possession is captured. And the outcome is so devastating that, that Eli falls off his chair, breaks his neck. I mean, the details, right? Now, here's the deal. Instead of reading the next several chapters, which are as good as this one, so go ahead and, and kind of go back and read it. I'm going to give you the Cliff Notes version of how this story ends. So after driving the Israelites back and capturing the Ark of the Lord's Covenant, the Philistines take the Ark back home with them and they place it at the foot of the statue to their god, Dagon, as the spoils of war, right, to show their god's superiority over the god of Israel. But morning after morning, when the people enter the temple, they found the statue of Dagon knocked over. And then the people of the Philistine town started to develop tumors on their body, and this kept happening until one morning the people found Dagon's statue knocked over once again, but this time its head and its arms had broken off. The Philistines were freaked out. They decided this must have been punishment for stealing the Ark of the Lord's Covenant, so they decided to return it. Now get this super weird detail. As a guilt offering of sorts, they fashioned five golden rats and five golden tumors, and they put them on the cart with the Ark of the Lord's Covenant, and they shipped it back to Israel. The Ark of the Covenant is received with rejoicing, 
The people gather, they offer sacrifices, they worship God, and Samuel calls them to return to the Lord with their hearts, to turn from their superstitious chasing after other gods and to commit themselves fully to the Lord. Friends, this is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Now, before images of golden tumors and headless statues cause us to write this story off as, as archaic or right, irrelevant, let's dance with it a bit. All right, let's get into it as I genuinely think there's some wisdom and meaning in this one. So this story, it does a couple things. First, it progresses the narrative of 1 Samuel. If you were with us last week, we, we know that Eli and his son's time was up, and now we know how it goes down. And not only do we now know about the whole falling off the chair and breaking his neck part, we also have a better understanding of, of the type of spiritual leadership that was guiding Israel at the time. Instead of encouraging or instructing people on how to deepen or develop their connection with God, Eli's sons were promoting a superstitious religion, one in which God is paraded around in a box to fight their battles and ensure their successes. So they're out, like for good. Eli and his sons are no longer the spiritual leaders of Israel. And, right, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. We've already met the person who's going to take over and bring the people back to God. The beginning of chapter 7, Samuel's little speech, it ushers in a new era in which a prophet is going to supersede the priests. And it's going to get good. Next week, Reverend Allie is going to jump in on this series and actually preach from 1 Samuel. So we get to keep going with this. It's going to be fun. But today, what can we do with this story? What can we take from it? What might it speak to us, our church, our world? Well, it's a, it's a tale of how not to treat the ark how not to use God as a good luck charm. But since we're not caught up in a battlefield with the Philistines and likely won't be anytime soon, what we need to do is ask soul questions of ourselves. Right? We need to consider our own relationship and connection with God and search it for any human tendencies. Because I bet if... if I bet we'll still find ways in which we use God transactionally as a, as a token or as a good luck charm to, to get our way, to win a debate, to ensure happiness or success. We might not be parading the Ark of the Covenant into all of our life's little conflicts, but, but are there ways in which we still put God in a box and then expect God to, to come on out at our command and, and do things for us? The answer, for me at least, is, is 
Yeah, of course we do. From, from time to time, we all do. Doesn't make it right, but we all do. It's almost like the four-leaf clover, right? Or the, the lucky underwear. We don't, we know that it doesn't work that way, right? We know that there's no magic in those objects, and yet we still do it. We know on a soul level that God isn't a, a puppeteer forcing people to be, think, or do anything against their will, and we also know that, that God isn't our puppet. And so if the Ark of the Lord's Covenant isn't a good luck charm, then what is it? And if God isn't our personal genie, how does it all work? Those are really big questions. We're not going to be able to tie a, a pretty bow on this morning, but let's see what we can find. Let's go back to the Ark of the Covenant. What was it? What was it intended to be? I primed this question last week. The ark carried three items, three sacred items. Does anyone know what they were? Any of the three? It's okay, the Sunday school kids will know after today, but they didn't know it. So the Ten Commandments, you can kind of picture them, two stone tablets, Right, a list of moral and spiritual guidelines to help the people of Israel live in whole and healthy relationship with God, with each other. Two, there was a jar of manna. It was that sweet bread that God caused to, to fall on the ground as Israel wandered in the wilderness. It was actually a really important story in Israel's history as it was the moment that they realized God was, was with them and would take care of them. And then the third item, this is a bit more of an abstract story. We didn't even read it while going through. It's Aaron's staff. So there was a moment in which uh, the community was trying to select who would be their priests. And so they had a representative from each tribe put their staff, their walking stick in a pile. And they were gonna use that pile to select who was gonna be the, the priests for the community, and Aaron's staff began to bud, like growing live branches out of a walking stick. And they, they took that as, as a symbol of God's selection of this family. These items and the box kind of constructed to hold them, they weren't good luck charms. They had no material value they were simply reminders of what God had done. Reminders of the relationship God had formed with, with the whole community. That's why it's often called the Ark of the Lord's Covenant. And for the, the linguists out there, the Hebrew word to describe this covenant is berit. And it's the same Hebrew word that describes the covenant of marriage throughout the Old Testament. It's not some contractual agreement that you'll never lose another battle to the Philistines. It's, it's a relationship based on devotion, on mutual care and love. 
what I'm trying to get at this morning is that even if our relationship with God is different than, than any of our human relationships, it can and should be so much more than just a good luck charm. So much more than, than a religion based on superstitious beliefs. The, the spiritual life is a journey, an always changing, growing, developing relationship with the divine as a community committed to, to that journey. This story reminds us to, to maybe lighten up on the thoughts of, of what God can do for us in the future and instead lean into a posture of, of gratitude, a posture of, of remembrance, a posture of covenant. As we now turn to, to the communion table, right, we, we recognize that these elements are, are symbols of covenant. They're reminders of relationship. In the bread and in the cup, we remember Jesus. And we remember how Jesus broke down superstitious barriers. How he picked grain on the Sabbath. How he shared meals with, with sinners. Right? How he marched into the temple, flipped over tables, and demanded religious folks stop, stop treating the house of God like a marketplace where you buy blessings, but instead invited them to return to God with their hearts. We are inheritors of a magnificent story of people searching after God. We read the whole thing so as to occasionally uh, get warnings of where not to walk. And occasionally we catch a glimpse of where God can be found. There's so much more awaiting us in the book of 1 Samuel and awaiting us in this spiritual journey called life. Amen.